And by the way, I mentioned the you care the who cares wins UN conference uh, earlier yeah. on. Yeah. The roadmap that came out of there explains how this is going to work because right now we are living in a time where we have a, a mobilized resistance and we're starting to have uh, really key successes. On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Alan Mendenhall, author, lawyer, critic, associate dean, and professor in the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University. He teaches a free market, non-woke business course that has gained significant clout, leading advocates of anti-woke ESG to seek his aid and testimony for an anti-ESG investment bill. His advocacy for economic freedom led the banking crony ESG profiteers to go on a witch hunt against him and try and get him canceled. Alan's story attests to the power of the individual. We spoke about how ESG is a segue into global governance, the growing decentralized resistance against hypercentralization, and how one person taking a principled stand is a great equalizer against the most corrupt concentrations of power. In the last three episodes of Liberty Curious, I had on some guests to talk about woke in a nutshell. So to talk about some of the philosophical aspects of it, to talk about the history of it, where it came from, which academic schools of thought, and how it's now proliferated into our society and into our culture, and then also how it has manifested itself in business. So in the most recent episode, I was speaking with Sam Gregg about ESG and how that's a manifestation of woke. And there are all kinds of coercive uh, methods that are being used to push big corporations and businesses into this, into this model, right? And this is also your area. So uh, you have an interesting story, though. <laughs> about all of this because uh, you were basically uh, sought after on a kind of witch hunt where the woke mob came after you for your anti-woke business course and then your some of your kind of activist or uh, policy advisory roles that you played, I guess. Yeah. So about a year ago, we launched something called the Free Enterprise Scholars Program here in the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. And we branded the program as an anti-woke business program. And what the program does is hosts extracurricular activities for select students. So undergraduate business majors apply to be part of the program. And then they participate in reading groups and a speaker series. So we have Andy Puzner coming in in October. We've had Steve Sukup. We've had Scott Shepard, many people who are prominent voices in the sort of anti-ESG movement. And this program caught on uh, the uh, uh, many different news outlets picked up on the story. I announced the launching of the program on Fox and Friends, and that program has been excellent. Now, the attention that the program drew has been beneficial on the policy side as well, because now I've been able to participate in the policy debates in a capacity that is somewhat new to the Johnson Center. Uh, in particular, SB 261, Senate Bill 261, came before the Alabama legislature last year. Uh, 
And it was a prohibition on government entities, not on private businesses or banks, but it prohibited government from requiring private businesses or banks to boycott industries based on non-financial or non-fiduciary bases. So this is a free market bill. It's dealing with public money and it's saying government cannot penalize private companies for refusing to boycott industries um, that uh, that are basically beneficial to Alabama, you know, timber, mining, coal, oil and gas, firearms. These are all really important industries in Alabama, and they also happen to be industries that are targets of ESG. So what the bill was designed to do mm. was prevent, for example, the investing of municipal bonds with banks that were doing ESG, that were screening out um, <clears throat> using exclusionary screens at the expense of Alabama industries. And I knew going into the legislative session that the banks were going to oppose it. We have one big bank in Alabama, Regions Bank, which is a big national bank. And I happen to know from private conversations and meetings and networking events that uh, different bankers associations at the state level across the country were also opposing different pieces of ESG legislation. There are two forms of ESG legislation going around. One prohibits the uh, investment of state pension money in sort of ESG portfolios. And the other is what's called this economic boycott bill. And that's the one that we were dealing with here in Alabama. So in about January, the Alabama Farmers of Federation, Alpha, they do, uh, you know, they're sort of the lobby group for Alabama farmers, but they also are an insurance company. They have uh, many different hats. Uh, told me that they were working on uh, a bill regarding ESG legislation that they had consulted with the DeSantis administration and others about the language of the bill and that they had a Senate sponsor for the bill. And uh, they asked me to come in and talk to them about ESG, which I did. And then months after that, I was contacted uh, by their government affairs office and by Senator Dan Roberts, who was the sponsor of the bill, about whether I would be uh, willing to come in and testify on behalf of the bill and speak to the Senate Republican caucus on the importance of the bill and the dangers of ESG. Well, the day before I went to the state house to talk, I was at a fundraising dinner and sort of got tipped off to a recent study that showed Regions Bank had given $14,400,000, something like that. That may not be the exact amount, but that's what I'm remembering, to uh, Black Lives Matter. And there's really no reason why an Alabama company would do something like that were it not for ESG, some sort of corporate pressure, because this is not something that the people of Alabama are interested in. Hmm. Well, I went up and uh, explained to um, the Senate what ESG was, what its history was, beginning with the Who Cares Wins United Nations Conference that was sponsored by the United Nations and the government of Switzerland, and the roadmap that came out of that conference, and how that was followed to sort of integrate ESG into capital markets, and what ESG meant for uh, the state of Alabama, and why this bill was important. Well, that evening, you mentioned Sam Gregg earlier, I just happened to be having dinner with Sam Gregg, because I also run our Federal Society chapter here in Alabama, and I was having Sam come in to speak to our chapter. And so we were having dinner that night. And I get a call from the president of the Alabama Bankers Association telling me that 
He had just gotten off the phone with the CEO of Troy Bank and Trust, which is obviously a very important um, bank here to, to Troy University, and that the, the chancellor of our university sits on the board of Troy Bank and Trust, and that uh, this uh, lobbyist was going to make sure that uh, that the Troy Bank and Trust and my chancellor were going to have my job, and he was going to make sure I got fired, and uh, and that did he know how many lobbyists he was going to line up to oppose me when I testified at the state house, and um, and all kinds of threats. And this is somebody that I actually knew somewhat well from social circles. I mean, uh, you know, I, we run into each other at Alabama political events and things like this. So I was very surprised by the aggressiveness with which this person approached me. And of course, I was worried about my job because it was being threatened. And now it turned out after some you know, subsequent conversations that he never contacted uh, the chancellor and he never, he did not really get off the phone with the CEO of Troy Bank and Trust. He just made that up to try to scare me into backing down. And um, that really wasn't going to work. I mean, it was so obvious that the Alabama legislature was going to pass this bill because it was an inevitability. Other red states were doing it. Our governor had signed on to an anti-ESG coalition organized by Governor DeSantis. Both our U.S. Senators, Katie Britt and uh, Tommy Tuberville, had come out against ESG. Donald Trump had come out against ESG. Elon Musk was calling ESG the devil. I mean, you basically could not keep your seat as a Republican in Alabama if you weren't going to sign on to this bill. However, that did not stop some shenanigans from uh, occurring, which was after I spoke, the bill was pulled from committee. Then it was put back onto committee. Then there were private closed door meetings at which the bankers lobbyists came in. Now, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard all have some degree of ownership in Regents Bank, which means they've got powerful lobbyists. Obviously, the big three together hold almost $30 trillion of assets under management. They're astoundingly powerful organizations. And so when they bring in their lobbyists, they have a lot of clout. And uh, the lobbyists were able behind closed doors to successfully gut the bill by making sure that the bill applied to anything but financial institutions and investors. Well, guess what? That's principally what the bill was meant to target. So they gutted the bill. The bill has no teeth anymore. And they told our legislators that this is the toughest bill we've seen of all the states. We've, this is the tough, well, that is absolutely nonsense. It was, it's not the, the toughest bill. Um, and it is uh, highly uh, problematic because it's worthless. So it's a bill that needs to get revisited. It's a bill that needs to go back before the legislature. And uh, we need to have a, a second go at it. Can I can I stop you there to ask you how, you know, for somebody like me, I don't understand the inner workings of these things. Like, how are they actually able to gut the bill? Like, what, what happens there on the inside? Well, basically, they take a Word document and they take the bill in the Word document and they do strikeout text and they insert text. And, you know, you can, you know, the version I saw from uh, different legislators who sent it to me as it was in the process of being gutted would just be highlighted text in a Word document. And you would just have strikeout font wherever words were taken out and then, you know, highlighted text where the new words were inserted in. And uh, I happen to know because I've got a lot of banker friends now, especially that I'm speaking out against ESG. The Alabama Bankers Association is a precarious position because it used to be two organizations. The community banks used to be separate. 
And they would benefit a lot from this bill because it's really the big, big banks that are doing ESG. So the big, mm. big banks are scared that there might be this uh, ESG uh, legislation coming because it would you know, tend to benefit the, the smaller banks. And the smaller banks are already considering breaking away from the Alabama Bankers Association because it's drifting from the values of most people in Alabama. And mm. – um, I know that at the Alabama Bankers Association, because I've got banker friends now uh, giving me all this information, that there was a lobbyist speaking at that bank bragging to the entire crowd about how they went in and gutted this bill and it won't apply to financial institutions. And all this bragging is going to do is incentivize all these small bankers who oppose ESG to now oppose their own bankers association. In fact, Within days after I testified, uh, the uh, Alabama Bankers Association sent out some uh, email about DEI training that they were going to host. And instantly, hmm. I had dozens of bankers across the states forwarding this email to me saying, look what Alabama <laughs> bankers are doing. Why are we a member of this? We should back out of our membership. And, uh, you know, this is a this is a dangerous thing for the banks in Alabama to be meddling with i mean a, a, a bank that's as big as regions risks you know some a run like if, if people started mm -hmm. thinking hey you know i i'm a christian i i don't need to be investing in in esg and inadvertently funding causes with which i disagree i'm going to go withdraw my deposits you know right. that's a very big problem for a bank like and we've regions. seen that happen you know, in the last couple of months, we've seen so many bank runs and so many bank failures, right? And well, FTX, um, so that's and obviously possible. FTX and, and, and SVB are, are two major examples. The Silicon Valley Bank was interesting because I read the, uh, the wait, we're in 2023, so the 2022 annual ESG report, and it is a yes. very entertaining read because they talk about all the great things they're doing with sustainable investment, all the great things that they're doing with ESG. And what's funny is in the G prong of ESG, they basically just say institute ESG here, institute ESG there. It's so it's circular, you know, instead mm -hmm. of saying, what we're, what are we going to do to govern? Well, our whole governance structure is going to be institute ESG. Well, then you find out and, and subsequent investigations into why this, this bank failed that it failed for a lack of governance and accountability. And you can see it in the ESG report where there's really no governance going on. Right. Yes. I remember actually looking into that too and looking into that report, just kind of perusing over it and seeing. So um, there's a lot of people that say that if you go woke, you go broke. But I mean, it's not that simple. There are really powerful forces who are trying to push this. And it looks like it's coming from the top down. Um, yes. But then it gets filtered through different layers. So the Alabama Bankers Association is one of those layers, which is underneath maybe Vanguard and BlackRock. So they probably have pressure from up there, right? Totally, totally. They're getting pressure from from the above. So my friend Lenore Ely has this term concatenation, and it's the linking of things together in a series. And she likes to use that word to refer to this global coordination of financial institutions. And you can see this. It's, 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 so it's one thing to point to like the G20, which consists of, uh, 19 countries in the EU. And they're part of, uh, you know, they, they developed this task force on climate related financial disclosures. And, um, 
you get all these private financial institutions committing themselves to those goals. Uh, you have business schools committing themselves to the UN Sustainability Development Goals through the primary business school accreditor, AACSB. You have all these sorts of uh, nodes in this giant coordination effort to institute ESG from the top down. Um, but in the United States, you you have it, a federal direction. The Biden administration, May 2021, has this executive order that basically commands the institution of ESG through all federal agencies. One of those federal agencies is the Financial Stability Oversight Council. What does that consist of? Um, the SEC, the Federal Reserve Board, the Department of Treasury, uh, the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, all the institutions that control capital flows. And there's a reason why that is priority number one. And it's because if you can start controlling the flow of capital, you can start pushing businesses to the left. So it's not just that you have BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, and then activist organizations like As You Sow, which is Soros-funded, that are going in and buying shares of company companies, um, being engaged shareholders, and getting private meetings with CEOs, uh, doing things to push the corporation to the left in ways that are harmful to the corporation. But also, you see this as a government-driven, federally-driven program. And you've got these banks that are, you know, sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. What, what we were, you know, really seeking to do with SB 261 is, uh, is give banks an out. So, for example, when, uh, when Troy University was faced with two, uh, vaccine, uh, orders, one from the Biden administration ordering vaccine mandates and one from our governor saying don't, well, that gave Troy University an out. It, we were able to say, mm -hmm. well, look, we've got conflicting views. We're, we're, we, we decide we're going to go with um, with our state order and we're not going to institute this vaccine mandate. Well, in the same way, SB 261 would have given Alabama banks cover to avoid investments that would alienate its own customers, um, which would be great for these banks because if the people of Alabama knew what a bank like Regions was investing in, they would divest immediately. So we could have given them a cover. And instead, mm -hmm. they, they chose to side with federal regulation, with BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, who own uh, shares of, of, of Regions. Um, but the other thing about Senate Bill 261 is if you were a bank and you weren't boycotting timber or agriculture or mining or firearms or oil and gas or whatever, you had nothing to worry about. You could do all the business uh, you wanted. It allows private businesses to do what they want. You know, you, you just it, all this was was a prohibition on on government. Um, it didn't restrict or restrain private banking at all. It just prevented mm -hmm. government from forcing banks to do ESG. And right. you will hear this this language coming up because this is what BlackRock State Street and Vanguard's lobbyists are going to say. They're trying to come in and say, oh, all this uh, ESG legislation is against the free market because it prevents our banks from doing business and investing the way we want to invest. Well, that ignores the fact that these banks would not be investing in these ways were it not for government compulsion to begin with. And BlackRock State Street and Vanguard, guess what? They're not getting rich off of you know, 
an ordinary people putting their money into mutual funds or money market funds with with these uh, asset management firms. No, that's not how they're getting. They're getting rich by investing government money, municipal bonds, state hmm. and federal pension money, sovereign wealth funds. This is how they're getting wealthy. And now that you have states divesting, Florida, Texas, West Virginia, divesting from BlackRock, they need to find new money. And so they're going to places like Sri Lanka. I recently did an interview with Sri Lankan media in which uh, the reporter was asking me about BlackRock's activities in Sri Lanka. And I didn't know that BlackRock was doing this, but BlackRock is now seeking a new client and trying to invest the, uh, the 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 pension money of that country because it's losing states here in the United States. It's got to find new clients elsewhere. Wow. And well, that's interesting, Sri Lanka. Just to to stop you there for a second, mm-hmm. if we can touch on that a little bit, because I I did some coverage of Sri Lanka uh, last year, I believe, and what happened was they were basically uh, doing the SDGs and doing the ESG stuff on steroids. They said we're going to do all of this stuff overnight. And um, they ended up no longer being able to export rice or even to uh, produce enough for their own supply, which was, I think, like the first time that that had happened in history since they had been producing vast amounts of rice. And so everybody was starving. You know, there was disarray. There was a lot of corruption in the government. And so it just led to this um, kind of push out of the regime. But it looked like the person that they put in place uh, of their prime minister ended up being somebody who had the same kind of ties. So now what they're doing mm. is they're trying to, again, predate uh, or act predatorially on Sri Lanka now. Like they're yeah. they're saying, okay, it's still vulnerable. We're going to go in there. Well, I think what they're just trying to do is get a new client. They're trying to get more pension money to invest because mm-hmm. private individuals don't have the kind of money that is exists in those pension funds. And so you you know you need those those levels of of funding in order to to invest and and make the type of money that the big 3 makes and by the way i mentioned the you care the who cares wins un conference uh, earlier yeah. on yeah the roadmap that came out of there explains how this is going to work it explains how hey we need to be using private finance we need to use uh capital markets in order to drive all of this uh, environmental goal. So it began in the European context very much as an environmental movement, a sustainability movement. In the United States, it has transformed into uh, a, a big social movement. So you can see after George Floyd and, and uh, the rise of Black Lives Matter and the, during the pandemic, um, if you go through uh, the proxy, uh, a proxy advisory review, it's actually, it's, it's actually sitting here. It's, a, it's, it's called proxy preview and it's published by as you so which is a big activist organization uh pushing the stakeholder model over the um, shareholder model and uh in general just esg and and left-wing politics Uh, and when was this conference sorry in what year who cares wins was back who who cares wins was way back in 2004 Ah. so a long time ago and they've had 20 years of pushing this stuff and doing academic research on it now I'm getting calls from uh, elected officials, from private businesses, all these organizations looking for research on ESG because we haven't been doing it. it it's 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 it sort of caught people who are conservative or free market off guard. We weren't paying attention mm-hmm. over two decades, and frankly, the banks weren't interested in ESG at first. They sort of were like, "Oh, this is great, you know, save the world, blah blah blah." 
But then you had the TARP bailouts, you had the bank failures, the crisis of 2008, and people were calling for bankers to be thrown in jail. And the bankers needed a PR. They needed a marketing thing. And so they latched on to ESG. And now instead of people saying, you know, why didn't we throw bankers in jail? Well, you know, the, the, the world economy collapsed uh, in 2008 and, and nobody paid any consequences. Well, the bank were now saying, well, look, we're saving the world. We're doing good. We're helping the environment. We're doing this. We're doing that. And, um, and it was just basically a PR ploy in the same way that many companies uh, partake in greenwashing, where they're not sincerely committed to environmental sustainability development goals. They just say what they need to say in order to get ESG ratings agencies to give them uh, positive rankings or po positive ratings. And, and so these positive ratings and rankings, mm -hmm. uh, those obviously lead to other things as well, right? Like if we think about the incentives for the individuals who are making up these ranks, like what are their incentives? Is it money? Is it power? Is it position? What is it? Oh, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's that. And it's also access, as I say, it's access to money. Um, you can look at the, uh, the, the new, um, uh, what the inflation reduction act, and it gives all these different incentives to, to companies that go green or do this or do that. You're going to get all these subsidies. So in order to, uh, even have a playing field, you have to comply with ESG. So for example, there's a proposed SEC uh, regulation and, um, and that, it, again, it's a proposed ESG regulation, but it would require, it would mandate ESG disclosures for publicly traded companies. Um, before it's been a uh, law, the NASDAQ already has a mandate. If you want to trade on NASDAQ, you're required to disclose different inform uh, just information about board diversity and stuff like that. But uh, uh, there's been a new development. The European Union adopted something called the European Sustainability Reporting Standards. That just happened uh, on July 31st of this year. It will go into effect uh, January 2024. But it mm. expressly institutes the stakeholder model that shifts governance away from trustees and stockholders and towards C-suite executives and CEOs. And it applies to publicly traded companies and privately traded companies. So if you're a company in, in, in an EU member state, you're, you've got a lot to uh, think about. Now, what's interesting uh, is that a lot of big, big companies have lobbyists that support these regulations. Well, there's a very simple public choice explanation for why this is so. Because the bigger you are, the more capable you are of just absorbing this regulatory cost. You are an incumbent firm and you're able to push out all your smaller competitors who don't have the means to comply with these expensive regulatory mandates. So it makes sense that the bigger companies would support these things because they, they, they can push out all the competition and, and, and try to dominate the market through regulatory capture. That makes so much sense. So much sense. Okay. So before we get back into your story, because I want to know what happens now after this, this, uh, these threats against you, uh, and after this bill is essentially quashed or watered down. Um, but before we get into that, I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about stakeholder capitalism. You mentioned that earlier. So um, and we talked about this a little bit off camera. So who are the stakeholders? A lot of people want to know. I see this all over Twitter. They're like, who exactly are the stakeholders of stakeholder capitalism? Well, traditionally, people pointed to 
the stakeholders as being customers, consumers, uh, employees. And even under the traditional shareholder model, the, the Friedman Doctrine, if you want to be a successful corporation, you cannot alienate or offend those uh, stakeholders. You know, you can't be a successful company if you're not treating your employees well or if you're alienating consumers. You depend on consumers for profits. But under the stakeholder model, the definition of a stakeholder is essentially so broad as to be utterly meaningless. If you are now defining the environment as a stakeholder or society writ large as the stakeholder, then you're saying basically everybody's a stakeholder, in which case really nobody's a stakeholder. And what this does is it vests a ton of power with these corporate executives, these C-suite executives, these CEOs. And so it's so interesting to me to see people on the left, activists on the left, championing this stakeholder model, which actually empowers the very groups that historically they opposed. They, you know, they were like, we hate CEOs. Big we business, hate this business. Right. We don't like this stuff. <laughs> but now they're all in bed with this big business and they are contributing to the enrichment of an elite and a powerful few at the expense of everyone else. They are, they are marginalizing the already marginalized. They are destroying the economies of the developing world and they're all doing it under the guise of these this left-wing politics it's so ironic there are some left-wing activists who are alive to this reality but there are so many sort of just democratic party types or you know i learn stuff from twitter and wikipedia types that that don't realize because they're just parroting party lines they're incapable of seeing outside of the sort of Republican Democrat dichotomy and, and, and right. really digging deep and seeing like, Oh wow, we're really destroying lives down in Latin America and we're really harming people, poor people in Africa. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends in Guatemala and their companies can't afford regulatory compliance or they can't just go out and buy Tesla's or whatever it is. And we are squeezing out those people and it, it is it is really astounding that the left, um, at least at the level of grassroots activism, hasn't woken up to this and hasn't started challenging BlackRock. BlackRock should be taking it from the left and the right. They're they're bad yeah. actors. Well, it looks like um, you know the emotionality of some people on the left, especially at the grassroots level, uh, has been manipulated in a way for them to be like, okay, well, I'm obviously, you know, they they see events like George Floyd. And they become part of that kind of collectivist movement. And, you know, then they no longer apply whatever reason or critical thinking they may have had. They just kind of look at this as the end. And they're not really looking at the means that are being justified to, to reach those ends. Um, but what, what you're saying here is that the, the means have nothing to do with the ends. Anyways. Correct. I think for many actors, people like Larry Fink, does Larry Fink care about the environment? I really don't think so. Larry Fink cares about getting richer and more powerful and instituting a worldview among people, many ordinary people, that gives him uh, unprecedented power. Uh, and 
that that has nothing to do with saving the environment or uh, making sure that uh, disenfranchised minorities have access to voting or whether um, you know uh, race relations are improving in the United States or any number of of social or political causes. I, I mean, Larry Fink doesn't care about that stuff. He, I mean, he wouldn't be jaunting around the world in his private jet if he really cared that much. Right, um, right. So, like so many others. He's he's definitely not so alone there among among the uh the stakeholders oh, because the, I think I think that that's really who they are, right? I mean, it's it's all of the people who they they say, "Okay, we're going to give all the power to the people." basically. And that's the rhetoric. It's going to be for you. It's going to be for the environment. It's going to be for the small people, uh, for the uh, unrepresented, for the minorities. But then, of course, all of the power is just funneled up. Um, yeah, it's so, a consolidation of power and a centralization of power, unlike any we've known in human history, because it's global now. We have the technology yes. to make it global, where previously everything had to be localized because we just couldn't communicate instantly with people across the globe, but we're in a globalized world now. So this is centralization in a way that in human recorded history, we haven't seen. Yeah. Hey, have you also done any research on CBDCs and how it could relate to ESG? Um, the answer is yes. I would not consider myself an expert, but there is one sort of interesting um, possibility that we might be considering in advance of central bank digital currencies. And I, um, you know, I, I, I hesitate to put this forward as a possibility because I am not extremely knowledgeable about it. But mm-hmm. I wonder the United States Constitution permits states to have their own species, so their own uh, metal currency. Um, there are states out there that have gold reserves. Some of them are red states. For example, Utah, the Mormon Church has a lot of gold. And would it be possible for states to start developing their own gold standard in advance of this? central bank digital currency being a possibility and maybe even coordinating with other states. You know, what if the red states began their own concatenation process and started working together to form a, uh, a gold reserve that, uh, a, a, you know, a currency that is gold backed and that could compete with the federal currency. Now this sounds like wild and, you know, it sounds like a, a, a sort of a off the wall idea and maybe it is, but I think we are, at a time when people are willing to try things that they have not tried before and people are willing to go places they have not gone before because the situation is so dire and because mm-hmm. the concentration of power is so ossified that it's going to take very creative and innovative measures to um, to to work our way out of some of these things. But what's so funny is you hear criticism of China all the time. Oh, human rights violation, uh, surveillance culture, et cetera, et cetera. Well, central bank digital currency, ESG ratings as social credit scores, we are basically trying to be China. And we're just trying to be our own version of China. And China's economy is going in the wrong direction right now. It is not the type of economy we want to be emulating. And yet our leaders seem to be obsessed with China and becoming like China. 
Right. Well, um, I've heard it actually that ESG has been described as a social credit system for corporations. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I don't think it's a very big leap to see how social credit scores could apply to individuals and private companies uh, eventually. I mean, you know, in China, your phone is used to monitor your whereabouts. If you um, uh, are surveilled and you jaywalk across the street, those cameras can identify you and can ding your social credit score and social credit scores in China can be used to prevent you from flying on particular airlines and they pr prohibit access to capital. You can get debanked fairly easily. Well, we see debanking going on here in the United States and the most obvious examples involve people that maybe are unpalatable, you know, like members of the proud boys and stuff like that. And we think, well, you know, those, uh, if those are the people getting debanked, I don't want them to be the face of my movement. But in Canada, you have Canadian truckers, and they got debanked, their assets were frozen. And that's terrifying to have little old ladies who donated $20 to the truckers. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Their bank accounts are getting funded. Here in the United States, the Alliance Defending Freedom uh, had trouble accessing uh, payments through PayPal because the Southern Poverty Law Center designated Alliance Defending Freedom as a hate group. And if you ever go to an Alliance Defending Freedom event and you see prayers and you see love, you think, what world do we live in in which there's an organization that could portray these people as haters? It's just so bizarre. Um, yes. it, it shows how um, bifurcated our society, how divided and fractured our society is when people can see these these groups of religious leaders from many faiths. When I go there, I see r religious leaders not just who are Christian, but I've seen Muslims, I've seen Jewish leaders. And, uh, and they interact with love and with care and only by never interacting with someone like this could you ever portray them as hateful. You just have to have no hands-on, face-to-face, personal, tangible experience with these people in order to believe that they are haters. Well, you've, you've said some interesting things there, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, the decentralization versus the centralization model, because I, I, this is something that I've been thinking about recently. And um, you're talking about different states, maybe even coalescing to create their own gold standards, um, things like this, to kind of combat the CBDCs uh, that are on the horizon. And, and that's interesting because there, you know, you, you talked about centralization being um, something that has arisen in a hyper-centralized way, in a global way, because of being in this kind of age of information and having things able to spread so quickly. But I think that that is also part of the strength of the resistance. Yes, it the being resistance. kind of this equalizer. And it is, that is the best word, because right now we are living in a time where we have a, a mobilized resistance. And we're starting to have uh, really key successes. Larry Fink announced at the end of June that he was going to stop using the term ESG. This is also a right. little dangerous because there's going to be ESG is going to continue, but it may not have that acronym assigned to it. So it'll be harder to identify. But hmm. the fact that people are moving away shows that the backlash is having an effect. McDonald's just scrubbed all ESG abbreviations from its website. Um, we, of course, we saw FTX and S, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, uh, fail. Um, S&P Global uh, Ratings is no longer going to publish or update ESG uh 
credit scores or uh, uh, credit um, indi- indicators. Now, they're still going to write about how companies are environmentally friendly and all that. They're just not going to assign these uh, numerical rankings to them. Um, Moody's cut the ratings of uh, several major banks, and it put others on notice of downgrades. So the banking industry is in a very precarious place in the United States. And uh, I don't think people realize how precarious the banking industry um, is right now and, 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 and how dangerous um, the, the, the toying with ESG really is. Um, and of course you hesitate to point it out because you don't want to run in a bank. You don't want a bank run, you know, you don't want the FDIC (laughs) running out of whatever, you know, you, you want the system to function for, to avoid just chaos, you know, but, uh, but this is a crisis of the bank's own making. Right. Right. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about, I guess, with this th- this kind of legislation that you were getting involved in, this kind of bill, is that antitrust? Is that what that's called, or is that something else? Uh, no, that is not antitrust. Uh, there is a uh, a House Judiciary Committee, and and the Republicans, uh, uh, it's being chaired by Jim Jordan, and they are working on an antitrust angle, and they're looking at the proxy advisory firms, ISS and Glass-Lewis, which... Um, People use the figure ninety-seven percent of the market that they 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 dominate. So they are referring to those two proxy advisory firms as a duopoly. But they're also looking at the big three: BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard as the asset management firms, um, and other organizations that are sort of, uh, I guess, professional champions of ESG. And okay. uh, organizations like As You So, which, I, as I mentioned earlier, are funded um, ultimately by Soros and the Open Society and those types of uh, programs. But uh, that is that is different from uh, from from the bill of which I spoke, which is purely it's a state level bill that's going around. I, I happen to know that there is another iteration of um what I'm calling SB 261 from Alabama, but uh, another ESG related bill that would um, prohibit the endowments at public universities from being invested in ESG weighted portfolios. And that's interesting because these endowments are private. They're private. They're put into private foundations. So they're private, but the foundations would not exist, but for the public entity, to which they are attached. So um, mm-hmm. I have sort of mixed feelings about that. But, uh, you know, at, at this point, this sort of decentralized mobilization seems to be the best way uh, to push back. And it just so happens that United States of America remains one of the most powerful con- uh, countries in the world. We're still a, a very strong economy. And um, the anti-ESG movement has on its side two states that rank very highly on economic freedom indices, uh, te- right. Texas and Florida. And and now that we're getting to a position where our, uh, our federal elections in particular presidential elections are basically Florida and Texas versus California and New York. And then there's some other, other sort of five swing States involved and the rest are just foregone conclusions. It becomes more and more important that Texas and Florida continue to be key leaders in this ESG space. Right. Uh, That's a really good point. And if we kind of come down the scale of decentralization, you know, you have the individual who's who's at who's at the bottom of that, really. And Mm -hmm. and oftentimes, you know, 
you hear people say like, what can we do about all of these things? Um, but individually, there's always choices that you can make and mm -hmm. you don't really know what the consequences of your choices are going to be necessarily. But this can kind of bring us back into your story because you just did something as an individual that you probably didn't realize would ripple out in the way that it did. Uh, no, I didn't. And uh, you're, you're correct about that. Um, it was uh, a frightening time. And I think the day after I testified, I texted my friend Andy Alavastro at the Heritage Foundation. And I said, Andy, I, I got to be honest, because the, the Bankers Association president had called me the night before. And I was like, I feel bad. Like, I feel alone. I feel isolated. And within a couple of hours, Andy had done out some some kind of all call. Within hours, I had people from think tanks all across the country saying, what can we do to help? What can mm. we do? Do we need to come down to Alabama like this? You are doing the right thing. We are behind you. And it was um, it was needed for me. I, 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 I felt um, that I was no longer alone, but that I had an army behind me. And not everyone has that sense of, of agency and is able to, you know, do what I did because I spent many, many years networking and working with think tanks and uh, working in uh, not necessarily policy, but in the trafficking and ideas, I'll put it that way. But you raise a good point about, um, about ESG and sort of the, the global uh, concatenation that that involves. And it has not changed our bounded nature as situated human beings tied to dis uh, distinct communities communicating with preferred languages and identifying with spe specific traditions and cultures. This is one place where I see like some possibility of free market people uniting with some of these more uh, NatCon types, not on industrial policy, not on trade. We'll never agree on that, but on sort of the uh, dehumanizing aspect of ESG. Even if you're an aspect, uh, an expat, a drifter, a vagabond, no matter how you know deracinated, uh, you've become, you still have your prejudices and partialities, a place that feels um, more like home than somewhere else, a language that's easier to speak, uh, manners and mores that are more familiar, um, dis discrete groups with whom you would rather associate than others. And the ESG movement has, a, has a, as its end global governance. If you put global governance in italics in Google, you'll see a link right away to the World Economic Forum. That's a term that they use and it circulates widely in academic literature. You can go to libraries or uh, Westlaw, ne uh, uh, LexisNexis, and these sort of search, academic search engines and put in global governance and get a vast uh, a vast array of, of literature on it. And it involves the coordination between government and private finance, investing and banking to stamp out cultural pluralism and institute hmm. a managerial system of grand standardization, including unified laws and regulations. And in the face of that, it, you know, that overwhelming aspirational global governance, a human feels no agency. Uh, you don't feel that you have the facility to uh, change, resist or direct just the everyday elements of your your jobs and careers. I think there's a psychic element to this that is harmful where people become isolated and they feel disempowered and insignificant yes. um, by forces that are frankly just too powerful to oppose. And uh, I think political decentralization is the, the answer to that, um, to minimize undue power and violence and to maximize individual liberty under just laws that govern a moral populace with mostly homogenous values. Uh, I don't think it's 
you know, I, in, in a pluralist context, I think, um, you have to expect decentralized communities to have homogenous values. But, you know, my thing has always been, you know, the, the, the ideal society, cause we're, I, I love Murray Rothbard, but we're never going to on this flawed planet have an idealized anarcho-capitalist utopia. I'm very anti-utopian in my thinking. So my thing is the best we can do is to try to maximize liberty under a system of order that involves as much voluntary participation as possible. We can never uh, get uniform agreement among people. So we, we have to develop a society in which competing views can be accommodated so long as force is not unduly exercised against other individual agents. And what does this look like? Well, it may differ in, in different places. You know, I think it would be contextual, situational. You would have different forms of government at different areas. But the important thing is that the the the, the greater number of people have to be able to participate in it. It has to be a voluntary association and it has to be something in which people have the freedom of exit. And right now, the nation states are so big and so powerful. And now they're working in this intergovernmental way in this con developing this concatenation in a way that just it, it marginalizes, it disenfranchises, it disempowers people and people don't feel that they have participation as much as these organizations talk about democracy. They are, they, they aren't acting on it. They are using the masses as it were to consolidate and concentrate power and really um, make sure that the, a smaller group of elites are governing the rest of us. There are some parallels there uh, with what happened towards the end of the medieval church mm. that we can see, right? So it's kind of like these excesses of power, excesses of bureaucracy, of regulation. Uh, they even had something kind of similar to carbon taxes, you know, where, where they would actually charge you, okay, you'll have to pay this amount of money to be able to do this now. So there were more and more rules and more and more laws and regulations. Um, but, you know, thinking on the hopeful edge of things, that also was part of what led to its demise, you know, its, its um, stranglehold on having all of the authority kind of being broken down. Um, because they, they basically just grew too big, too bloated, um, and too arbitrary, and people resented that. And I think that there is a parallel that we can draw uh, to, to the way that the, the public feels about uh, this oversized, bloated government that is seeking to acquire even more power and go even higher up and, and pair up with, with the biggest uh, private organizations to, to move towards this um, world governance. No, I think that's right. I mean, it, it, again, the global governance seems to be the telos of this ESG movement to the extent that it has an end game. That is what the end game is. What is that going to ultimately look like? No one's been able to just draw it out. Uh, at some point, people will become disappointed, disappointed because, um, you know, as all human projects do, this one will ultimately not generate the utopia that is promised. <laughs> So, yeah. um, you know, yeah. that, and, and there is a religious element to it, even to this, this wokeness that, you know, it, it, it's sort of, it, there's a, a sense of atonement the the people that are, 
are, are, you know, taking a knee and essentially praying to whatever entity, the God of wokeness, it's, it, it fills a vacuum in a, an increasingly secular society. It fills this need mm. and, and ESG in the same way. I think it has, I think one reason why so many CEOs are buying into it is it has this sort of psychic benefit. It makes people feel good. Like before they felt bad about making profits. They were like, well, I, you know, I enjoy having money, but it, maybe it feels wrong. Now they can say, Oh, I'm, I'm making profits and doing good. Never mind the fact that businesses do good by adding value to society, by producing goods and services at cheaper prices, by employing people, by making our right. lives easier and better. Business as it, it traditionally existed did good things and profits were not bad. They were the rewards businesses got for making our lives better. But that just wasn't enough. It didn't provide the psychic benefit to these uh, CEOs um, who existed in a pretty hostile culture, a culture that did not appreciate business as it traditionally was practiced. Well, Alan, that's so interesting that you just brought that up because Milton Friedman famously argued for that, right? The um, what what was that what was that piece called about basically going after profit was uh, the best thing uh, for business to do morally, or it wasn't morally yeah. his words. I forget what it was called, but I think you're referring. I, I, I might be wrong, but I think you're referring to the 1973 New York Times article, but I can't recall the title yes. of it. I don't recall yes, the title. Yes, yes. Well, we'll pin it underneath here. But basically, he argued that that was the the duty of a business, and that consequentially, people would actually be better off if businesses focused on profit. But I don't know if you were aware of this, but Klaus Schwab, back around that time, he wrote a response to Friedman. Yeah. Absolutely. Saying that it was the opposite, right? That's what do you exactly know about right. that? Well, yeah, he did. And he wasn't alone. In 2019, the Business Roundtable, which is basically a social networking group of uh, very wealthy CEOs, purported to redefine the purpose of a corporation. That's how bold they were. We are purporting to redefine the purpose of business. And they expressly changed that purpose to shift from the shareholder model, that Friedman model, to the stakeholder model. And they said, this is what business is about from now on. And that is, <laughs> first of all, it's the height of arrogance to purport to like redefine a concept that has been worked out and hashed out over centuries. But second of all, it's, it's dangerous to have um, people at that level issuing such a proclamation that flies in the face of most of our laws. I mean, most of our companies are incorporated in Delaware. Delaware has a traditional fiduciary duty model. It has the shareholder model embedded in its laws. We have ERISA. You know, we have all kinds of different laws that are predicated on the shareholder model. So you're basically saying the purpose of business is to violate all law as we know it in the United States. That is, that is a recipe for chaos. And that's actually one of the reasons why, um, in many cases, ESG is not able to creep into the United States as much as it is in Europe, right? I I think that's correct, and I think you the I think the Americans, uh, for all our problems and for all the tumult in our country, are still very jealous of our rights and our sovereignty. And I think that Europeans, because of the aftermath of World War II, maybe uh, to atone for their past, are more willing to forfeit 
their sovereignty to the end of some sort of supranational structure, some something that is not nationals. Now, I think that you're seeing a lot of backlash against that at the moment. I think you've got populism virtually everywhere, France, Italy, you name it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's everywhere. And it's not just in Europe. And it's not just in the United States. It's in Latin America. We've got a, a wild election going on in both uh, Guatemala and Argentina. I don't know if you've seen the yes, the Argentinian the Argentinian candidate who's like a radical anarcho libertarian. Uh, exactly. Pro Bitcoin. Yeah. 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 So um, you know, it's it's happening um, in Asia. It's really happening everywhere. And you know, I have no crystal ball. Who knows where this is headed? But I think decentralization is a solution that could lead to nonviolence. And I think our goal needs to be minimizing power and minimizing violence. And that's the best we can hope for is a society in which power is checked, power is neutralized, and violence is minimized. Because you can't get rid of those things. They're we're human beings. We are flawed creatures. We have fallible minds. We are wired to do certain things that are sometimes destructive of others. And we're never going to create a perfect world. So the best we can hope for is to create institutions that, again, minimize violence and neutralize power. You'll never get rid of those things. But you can try to minimize them to the extent possible. I think that that's a really interesting concept and it's something that I think merits a whole podcast because there's a really interesting relationship between power hierarchies and violence and how those have evolved over time as well, right? So um, as the, the hierarchical systems are changing in the world, and we see that we're kind of going through that now, you know, it's it's being pushed and pulled in those two opposing directions. I think that the relationship uh, to violence will, I don't know, we, we kind of, it's like we need to kind of figure out what that relationship looks like now. You know, how is the use of force uh, threatening to us and what are the kind of ways that we can, um, that we can insulate ourselves from that and you know, thinking again from, you know, medieval times to now, you had uh, different forms of violence there. You had different kind of threats because people weren't protected by the nation state at that point, right? So right. the nation state kind of came in as a way to be able to to protect uh, medieval societies. But then the nation state now evolved into something else. So, so forms of governance often um, are heavily related to the kinds of, of violence that, that we see in a civilization. But again, that's, yeah. that's a topic for a whole other podcast. Well, just a but couple, if you want to say anything on it, go yeah, ahead. Just, just a couple <laughs> brief points, which is that if you take the Treaty of Westphalia as sort of like a referent as, the, as a starting point for the birth of the nation spa- uh, state, so to speak, you, you have to realize this, this nation state paradigm is not very old, just a few centuries old. And so we can expect it to transform into something else eventually. Um, I don't know what that will look like, but um, maybe all this uh, global concatenation is part of whatever it's going to become. Uh, so that's that's the first point. On the point of, of hierarchies, you know, I think it's inevitable for societies to um, have some degree of stratification. And the important goal is to ensure that 
that the, those class distinctions or whatever you want to call those distinctions are based on merit on based on uh, earned rewards and i think increasingly what you see with movements like esg and this global concatenation is to preserve the power that already exists at the top because those players are no longer adding value to society. They're no longer innovating and they are trying to use the apparatus of government and regulation uh, mm -hmm. to protect incumbent firms, to protect against disruption from the bottom up, to protect against new entrants into the market. And that is highly problematic when the power is so concentrated at the top that they are able to prevent people from rising up on the basis of merit. And that's, I think, the situation we have now. Yeah, that's a very, very good point, Alan. So um, let's let's go back to your story now and think about you're, you're sitting now at Troy University, so you haven't been fired. So, so what happened after all of this? You had these people come to your aid, a little community come around you and say, how can we help you? You felt less alone. Um, the witch hunt, did it, did it continue on for a long time? What did, what did your battle look like? Well, uh, eventually, um, Eventually, there was a lot of pushback against the banks. Uh, I think some of the local reporters, we have a new uh, newspaper called 1819 News, which is doing really bold reporting. And they mm -hmm. sort of identified uh, Regions Bank and Alabama Bankers Association as an enemy or um, as an obstructionist force in this ESG fight. And so they started looking into those companies. And my guess is they're still looking into those companies in a sort of investigative journalism type of way. But uh, uh -huh. SB 261 did pass. As I mentioned earlier, it was gutted. It has no teeth. So um, I suspect there will be new versions of it uh, materializing maybe next session, maybe after. I don't I don't know. But I suspect it's an inevitability that we'll see new versions of it. But, you know, eventually I, I, people took notice of what I was doing. You know, you sometimes you feel like you're just alone and you're doing things and nobody's paying attention. In this instance, it wasn't that way. Uh, the Heritage Foundation actually gave me uh, one of their inaugural uh, academic um, prizes and it was a tremendous honor and I was so happy to be recognized and that people took notice of what I was doing. And I think it's catching on. I, I get calls from people that are out of my league, so to speak, uh, people that are uh, executives at large companies saying, you wouldn't believe what's happening at our company. I'm, thank you for doing what you're doing. You know, we, we really need a change. And I'm talking like big companies, you know, like companies that are publicly traded on, uh, you know, all the, all the major money markets. And I just sometimes wonder if all these people just stood up and spoke their mind the way I did, would we even be in the situation we're in? Everyone's just so afraid to speak up because they think the consequences are going to be fatal, but I, I mine weren't. And I ended up getting rewarded. And now I'm hearing from all these people that want to help and want to do something, they want to do it from behind the scenes. But what if they all just stood up? What if they had courage? What if they were mm -hmm. willing to take a stand and take a chance? If we all started doing it, I really believe it's a phrase Vivek Ramaswamy uses, but and, and probably others too, but courage is contagious. I can now feel that. I now sense that. I get calls from people now, like I say, who are out of my league and they're wanting to do something. They're, they're getting courage. And if little old me, if I can, if I can inspire courage and I'm, you know, I'm certainly no, no, no ultimate warrior. I'm, I, you know, I'm certainly no Albert Einstein. I'm certainly no, you know, major force. But if, if I can inspire courage, then imagine what somebody 
with real influence could do if they just stood up. And if we get more people like that standing up, and I'm seeing it in the political sphere, I'm starting to see politicians speak in a more bold way. And that is going to be a game changer. Yeah, I think that that's really, really wonderful. Um, one of my favorite uh, trilogies is Lord of the Rings. Mm. And I think that there's something powerful in there uh, in the story that you experienced and some parallels. Um, and Lord of the Rings, of course, the the hero is is a hobbit. It's a, it's a, a regular, normal Normal guy. Are you trying to call man. me a hobbit, Kate? Is that what you're trying to? Are no, you trying I haven't. To... I haven't actually seen you in person, but you don't look like you're that small. You know, I don't think that you're hobbit sized. No, but, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, I I think that there's something really important in that message too, um, because you said this can this can spread out and this can become contagious, of course. But I think one of the one of the lessons that I take from Lord of the Rings and everybody sees it differently is that. It mattered at the end what that unique, ordinary individual did, and it had really, really big consequences going up against basically kind of uh, an analogy to what we see now, this this hyper-centralization model, kind of like trying to take power and authority everywhere of all of the land. Um, and at the end, you see that there are other people of higher stature, like Aragorn, you know, who steps up and takes the role of king at that point. So you're saying here you could have people step up who are in big business, who are who are in the Senate maybe, or, you know, who have different roles who, who may have an effect. But remember that Aragorn at the end, he kneels in front of the hobbits. Mm. He says, it was you guys and what and what you did that that made the difference. Well, I think that's a, a, a beautiful uh cautionary tale too and the other thing about frodo is that he does suffer from temptation it's not that he doesn't suffer but he remains uncorrupted despite the temptation and he's really because he's a hobbit he's the only figure that 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 is capable of that no one else could be trusted even if they were forces for good they couldn't be uh couldn't be trusted with with the ring and as there is success on this esg pushback there probably will be a temptation among people to do it for themselves. Like, oh, I'm starting to get attention. I'm starting to get public. I, and the, it, it, this needs to be not about the person. You know, this needs to be about something, the principles. Always make sure it's about the principles. And as the pushback continues to grow, if, as, as there actually starts to be some money put behind it, people need to make sure they're getting in this for the principles and not to make money off of politics, but to make sure they're doing this for the right reasons. And that will be a temptation. I'm sure that will be a temptation for, for people. Um, and again, it, we, we're, we benefit from being the resistance right now. We benefit from being in, in the disempowered minority, but as our ranks grow, as people start to catch on to the ESG scam, there will be, opportunities for people to take advantage of the movement and to try to use it for their own benefit. And that's a danger with any mobilized force of human beings. And uh, I think it's just important to make sure uh, that everybody who starts to get involved in this space really does a, a sort of a self-evaluation every morning and every night. Why am I doing this? Who am I? 
What do I stand for? What is my purpose in life? Because we really all just have such a short time here and we need to do the best we can to achieve the right things. That was really, really well said, Alan, and uh, really beautiful. And uh, it got me to thinking that you are a writer. And that just came across in uh, talking about Lord of the Rings here with you. (laughs) And um, those kinds of themes, those kind of human themes that we see, you know, um, I definitely encourage people to go read what you've written as well. You've written some nonfiction, you've written some fiction too, and you're a fantastic writer. So I I did read uh, your last book as I was preparing for this podcast and, you know, totally different kind of content, but... um, I think that you're doing really important work um, that is inspiring for other people. And I really do think that that was a good word of caution as well. Uh, Something that we need to be aware of as, you know, we don't build tribal identities around being the resistance. And instead we focus on the actual principles themselves, because then if not, then we just become utilitarians as well. We just become uh, trying to use any means to justify our ends. uh, And that is pretty disastrous. Those are the kinds of of ways of thinking and of being and of operating that that lead to war, right? That's right. The temptation is there for everybody to try to make the world over in the way they want it to look. And sometimes the way the world ought to look is accommodating of many different ways of existing and living. Yes, that is very, very true. Um, So I hope to have you back on here again. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you for sharing your story. Yeah, this has been a a great, great conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Are there any last thoughts that you would like to share? Uh, I'm sure there are plenty, but we can get into those in, in the next episode. I just very grateful to you for having me on and appreciate the opportunity. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Alan. Thanks, Kate.